This podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of Trivelo Coaching, Jared Donnelly. With the end of tri and racing, summer racing season here in Australia, it's time for a lot of our athletes to take a break. Uh, but around the rest of the world, the racing season is just beginning and uh, some athletes might be starting to get in seriously good form, including the pros. But the question remains, uh, it is difficult to maintain a high-intensity training program for 52 weeks of the year without overtraining or feeling burnt out. So how do you take a break effectively without risking detraining? How fast does your body detrain and lose all the fitness gains you've worked so hard for? This is our main topic for today. But first, Dad, welcome to the episode. Let's start with what are you grateful for? There's so many things I've been thinking about what I'm grateful for that's been running through my mind. And uh, I've come up with, tried to make it as simple as possible um, with the war in the Ukraine and just seeing the footage of the dead bodies in the streets. And you just... You've got to say, thank God we live in a, a place where we've just never been touched by that. Um, so I'm grateful to be an Australian living in Australia. Um, I feel really sad for, for the Ukrainians and, and anybody else who's in a, a you know, an unrest um, situation in their, in their world and it's happening all over the world in Africa, all, all continents are having, but we just seem to be so fortunate. Um, sure, we had a tough time in COVID, but it's kind of pales into significance when you're talking about people being shot on the street and uh, innocent people just not going about their lives who are unarmed. And um, so, yeah, grateful to be fortunate to, to uh, live here. I agree. Uh, my gratitude this week is actually an email we got from a listener, which I really just want to read out because uh, we both really enjoyed uh, this email and we really enjoy reading emails like this. Uh, it was uh, gave us goosebumps, to be honest, this story. Uh, this person said, I'm an avid listener of your podcast and this... Uh, this is a story about uh, my daughter, who was a young doctor, um, was facing the daunting challenge of applying for highly competitive postgraduate training program. Um, and at the time of the application, she looked for my help and advice, and I guided her to your plan, prepare, prepare perform mantra. Plan, prepare, perform. Uh, to paraphrase it, we meticulously considered the requirements as though it was an Ironman course. Uh, she did all the background reading, courses, projects, and networking that would show her aptitude. She was competing against older and more experienced people with uh, experience in that specific speciality. Uh, and her co- my constant advice was to disregard the other competitors. You have no control about who shows up on the day. All you can control is to be the best version of yourself. Uh, you'll be loving this. Uh, <laughs> so far, Absolutely. And her daughter heeded all the advice. Uh, she said to her on the morning of the interview slash race, uh, you will be like any, any triathlete in the wetsuit, um, in their wetsuit on the beach uh, before an Ironman. Um, you'll be calm. You'll have completed the training and done everything within your power to have a good outcome. So, you know, there will be no regrets, whatever the outcome of the race. So, go in and execute. And clearly, it worked as there were 53 applicants for 10 places. She was the youngest and least experienced applicant and she got it. So, thank you very much for sending that email in. That uh, We really enjoyed that story and uh, it really uh, we're glad to see that the plan, prepare, perform mantra really does apply uh, to life generally. Very grateful um, for that uh, email to be sent in and it uh, it makes makes you feel good um, that you're having an influence on people 
people around the world, no matter whether it's to do with sport or to do with um, your work or, or your family. And, and that's kind of the goal that we've always had was to to be here and try and give tips to help people get along the journey in their life. And, and uh, yeah, I could not be happier or more grateful to get an email like that. Moving on to what's caught our attention and we'll try and fly through this because there's some big things happening in sport, but we've got a big topic to get through. So firstly, uh, Flanders happened on the weekend, a favorite race of the year, uh, and it didn't disappoint in, in both the men's and women's race. The World Championship of Spring Classics, they were calling it on the uh, on the the coverage, which I thought was incredibly accurate because as people who've listened to the podcast for the last 110 episodes, we do go on about the Spring <laughs> Classics and how we were a part of that for five years, taking uh, groups to Flanders and Roubaix. So we would do the uh, Tour of Flanders uh, um, Grand Fondo and then watch the pros and then we would train in the week and then line up for Paris-Roubaix Grand Fondo and then watch the pros and uh, it was a special two weeks that we will always spend in Belgium so we have a real affinity and Belgium's like our second country um, so we love the Belgians and we love anything to do with it and to be there uh, all those years and then not to be there for the last two years has been well three years now has mm. been oh, very envious um, that we're not there but um it never fails to deliver as one of the all-time great races. And once again, um, you had the best riders. And this is why I love the Tour of Flanders, the Ronde van Vlaanderen, which is what it's um, really called. Um, the best riders get to the finish and then they can duel it out. And that's why I love it. And it happened in the male and the female race. The best riders got to the finish. And, um, you know, the the – the Quaramont is a, is a tough hill, um, but the other two hills, uh, th- they sort out the race, mm. um, which, um, we, you know, we know we've ridden those those hills in the in the actual Grand Fondo. We've trained on them and had a real good go. And the pros make it look really easy when they're when they're going up those final climbs. And I actually had a uh, one of the guys we coached say, "Why aren't the riders standing up?" And it, you can't stand up on the cobbles. It's near impossible. Yeah. Um, you see the tires will slip. Yeah, you'll slip, and and they're always greasy. Mm. And so it's like on ice skating that the, the cobbles are hard enough, but they're slippery. And the minute you stand up, your back wheel spins. So and to put it in perspective, your part of the challenge is, especially up the, those really steep ones, is um, you're almost you're almost trying to put downforce into the bike as you're pedaling uh, to keep the bike from not slipping. Because if you kind of let up a little bit, even if you're seated, if you let up a little bit, the bike does slide and then you're off. And um, so you, it's hard to tell on TV, but um, when you're actually riding yourself, you really are you're almost pressing down as hard as you can, and you. you trying to sit your ass down as, as hard as you can just to keep that grip there because it's not fun slipping. No, and, and the, the Paderberg is one of the ultimate climbs. It's got 20% gradient mm. uh, halfway through it and the camera view is fantastic because you get see the riders coming up over that 20% gradient and that's, that's a real kicker at the end and that's over the journey. You know, I've watched 20 or 30 years of Cancellara and guys attacking there you know, um, and winning the race from um, hitting the Koppenberg or the Paderberg uh, at pace. And the Pog, who was my tip, he did it uh, so well, but incredibly, um, the great man himself, um, Matthew Vanderpoel, could hang in there. And that was his only chance. And Anamia Van, Van Vluten did have to get rid of uh, Lotta Kopecky in the female race, exactly the same scenario. And both 
both uh, uh, Vanderpol and Kopecky were able to stay with the better rider mm-hmm. and beat them in the finish. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it was a great example of uh, the best riders getting uh, to the pointy end, and and then, you know, there's certain key things that <coughs> the riders who came second or fourth in this in the male race, um, unreal that it came fourth. That's a whole other story. Um, um, Bagacha came fourth instead of winning, mm. um, but you know you've got opportunities. You need to take them, and you know he did his best to get rid of uh, Matthew Vanderpol. But Vanderpol was just too gutsy, and so was a lot of Kapeki too gutsy to. And she did it at um, Strata Bianca as well. Mm-hmm. She, the two of them were it was a two up duel, and she's beaten her twice now. So, you know, and they've both been on hilly uh, uh, parkours, which means that you know, wait till they get to a flat stage. You know, this Belgian girl is going to win some races, and I know I'm jumping from race to race here, but it's you know, it, it is an example of uh, of. Of you know you've got to take your opportunities and if if you miss them then you've got to re rethink how am I going to win this race and I was loving the commentary um, I think Matt Keenan was asking Simon Garrens if you're Bogarcha how are you going to beat Matthew Vanderpoel in this sprint and and you know I think he got it really wrong um, he he allowed Vanderpoel to slow down which mm. obviously allowed the other two guys to catch up but Bogarcha's going to be able to sprint for a long time. Um, and hold power for a long time. That's his trump. Mm. If it's going to come down to the sprint, he has to think, what's my strength? Well, I can sprint for 500 metres, whereas Vanderpoel's already been beaten in a long sprint the year before, Mm. the year before he won Mm -hmm. in a short sprint. So Vanderpoel was very clever. He made it a short sprint by a 125-metre sprint. Um, And Pogacar couldn't accelerate as quick as the big, strong Vanderpoel. Mm -hmm. That was his mistake. Yeah. Um, it's incredible that he's had three sprint finishes in a row at Flanders. MDVP. It yes. was, and three different riders, and he got rolled once and won two. So, um, so you learn from your your poor performances, yeah, don't you? Absolutely. And it was so good for Lotte Kopecky to be in the Belgium champion colours, winning the, the local hero race in front of the locals. It was, um, the crowd went nuts, didn't yeah, they? they were banging their side as yeah. hard as they could. It was yeah, and there was beer getting thrown <laughs> yeah. um, and they were watching the big screen. And look, as you and I know, this is the AFL grand final for Austra- our Australian listeners or for the American or European it's the Super, Super Bowl. Bowl. America, yeah. yeah. Tour of Flanders is the biggest, you know, it's, it's the big race um, besides Tour Tour de France, it's kind of the the, the one you want to win. Um, it, I know there's other monuments, but but uh, yeah, this is the one you want to win. And um, there's some unbelievably good good names. And you know, we've ridden on the course, and there's a section on the course which uh, in the women's race, um, uh, one of the female commentators wasn't Bridie. I can't remember who the other female commentator was, but she she was saying. Uh, which you know is every 10 metres on this particular course has got the names of the previous 50 winners on the road, mm. which is pretty special when you're training, you're riding along reading, mm. oh, 1971, mm-hmm. you know, this guy won and it's got the females there now. When we were there, they didn't have the female riders. So, um, so yeah, that's that's pretty special. And, and you feel like you're part of, uh, you know, when you're riding on the training sessions in between waiting for the races, you, you love riding on the course to, to, to know that this is where the pros are. And, um, and it's just an exciting time to be in Belgium. Yeah, absolutely. And it reminded me that um, 
God, we got to get back there, you know, because <laughs> it's it's so fun to see the best riders in the world riding roads that you know, and uh, it's just spectacular riding. It just it's the type of riding you dream of, you know. And as much as we like performance here, and we sit on the trainer to get the most out of our our sessions, um, nothing beats riding around there. I don't think. Yep. Um, moving on, we had uh, one of the first big seventy point threes. Oh, races of the year on the calendar, Oceanside, um, and it was a pretty interesting race. And there's a bit going on uh, with the pros at the moment with the St. George World Champs, 70.3, only a month away, I think it is. Um, and a lot of uh, athletes coming into form. This is a big test for a few to see who's uh, coming in. There's a lot of stuff going on on social media between uh, athletes and groups, and um, it's pretty interesting to see. And I don't know how much of it is just joking, and there seems to be a little bit of sniping and some seriousness, a bit of bite to some of the comments on social media. So we'll see how that all unfolds. But uh, uh, Jackson Laundry had a big win just 20 seconds ahead of what was one of the best sprint finishes I've ever seen, in not just triathlon, but in athletics. Um, it was Lionel Sanders versus Rudy Von Berg and they were coming in together and they were slowly just winding up the sprint and um, there was just a great camera angle from the finish line when you can see them 500 metres away and it's just a dead sprint and um, they're going a flat chat, which would just be the most horrible experience to have to do at the end of a 70.3. Um, yeah, I can't even imagine having to grit your teeth like that and not one of them would yield. One of them would get as far as 20 centimetres ahead. Their shoulder would get ahead and you, you, you thought that the, the rope might break and the other person, that's enough to go. But then the other one would come 20 centimetres ahead, but they never let each other get more than half a metre. Um, and then Lionel pipped him on the line, which... Uh, we're really hyped for him this season. I think he's our man. He's the guy we want to watch. Uh, and it was good to see him just get that mental edge because he, he has been frustrated throughout his career about about not being a good racer. Yeah, I think you've summed up that race pretty well. Unfortunately, the, the winner, you know, he lost a little bit of the limelight. Exactly. Uh, yeah, right. But how ironic that uh, um, Brownlee was only... 20 seconds, seconds behind yeah. second and third, and second and third was only 20, yeah. 20 seconds behind first. So yeah. I, I've never seen too many half iron 70.3s. Yeah. Um, you see a lot in Olympic where people are coming in, yeah. you know, yeah. two, five, ten seconds apart. But or within 40 seconds. Yeah, I mean, that shows you the running standard because mostly people can swim together, they can ride together because you've you got the pace line happening. But when you get off the bike, it's quite separated. There's some outstanding runners who can run 68 minutes mm. for, for a half marathon and all the way down to 75 minutes, which is not competitive uh, when you're against guys who can run 69, 70, mm-hmm. 71. So you don't, you don't really get a close finish, but, but to have four guys within 40 seconds is, is pretty phenomenal. And I can't wait for the next set of races because if that's the standard and they all weren't there, all the, you know, all the guns weren't there. So, mm. um, you know, I, I think it's, uh, it goes well. And of course, being the f- first race of the season, people are finding their way because they've had, you know, they had no races. So, yep. um, so I'm excited. And, uh, and as, as you know, we love people who are like Lionel, who are, who have looked at themselves and thought, oh, I need to change to do something better. And we talked about this on the podcast before, and now we're watching him intently. To, and already it seems like he's growing in confidence in, mm-hmm. in his training. And now he's had a race where he's, you know, he's really, he's been competitive. Well, yeah. He's right there. Yeah. And um, someone that is a dark horse is is Alistair Brownlee, who multiple gold uh, medal winner at the Olympics, um, really is giving this um, 70.3 distance a hard crack and wants to dominate. And uh, we just haven't seen him much. He, he's been injured. Uh, he's been off the radar a little bit. Um, but he's there. He's still definitely there. And to be only 40 seconds behind, kind of first race back where we haven't seen him for a long time. 
Yeah, that'll be interesting over the next month. And then in the female category, uh, really excited. Uh, I really like watching Taylor Nib, who dominated. She won by a few minutes. Um, it is only her, I think it's only her third 70.3 ever, maybe her fourth. Um, but she's an Olympic distance triathlete. Um, and last year, she she either de- debuted her 70.3 at the World Champs or it was her second one. I, I haven't got those facts exactly right, but she podiumed at the World Champs, um, young athlete. Um, and with Lucy Charles recently out with injury and pulling out of the World Champs next month, Taylor Nib is a massive chance to win that, which would be incredible for someone so inexperienced. Um, and another notable mention, our Aussie Ash Gentle came in fourth. Yeah, um, certainly the women's field's wide open now with uh, Lucy Charles Barkley out and it just goes to show you never know what's going to happen next to any athlete at any given time uh, and any given period of their career. So, you know, people may be dominant and she is ex- outstanding. She is the dominant female athlete of, a, gener- untouchable last of a generation yeah, almost. Yeah. Um, and, and now she's not racing. So, you know, for people who are trying to race for second – you should never have that attitude anyway. You should be always thinking that you're a chance and you never know what's going to happen to your other competitors. <clears throat> the email we got, um, you know, concentrate on the things you can control rather than um, worrying about who you're against. And, you know, we see that in age groups uh, uh, with the people we coach. Or I'm forever saying, you know, don't worry about the rest of the field, who, who you're racing against. Mm-hmm. You have no control over what they're doing. You don't know what form they're in. Mm-hmm. You don't know if they're injured. You don't know if they've been sick. Um, you've got to go with your race plan and and race the race. Have your plan and race the race. And mm-hmm. and you know the minute you start um, putting yourself second against someone who you think should beat you, which with you know with good reason, but you can't have that attitude. Mm-hmm. You, you might as well not start. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And last thing before we get into the main topic is we had another uh, listener question that I just wanted to read out. Um, and if you have any questions, uh, send them through. We'll either try to get back to you or we'll read them out on the podcast. But uh, this is – I wanted to bring this up because it brings up an interesting point. And, and this person uh, plays uh, uh, just amateur sport here in Australia, just uh, Aussie rules football. Um recreationally, so just for fun. Um, and they're, But they play for a club, so um, – uh, this is this actually doesn't happen much around the world where people play properly for a club and train twice a week and, and play the full day Saturday uh, outside of uh, university level or um, high school level. Uh, I was interested traveling in America. I asked you know people who were previously in college playing sport what they did after, and they said, "Oh, there's nowhere to go play. You know, you can go play." casual pickup basketball or something, but um, it's very common here for uh, people to play into their 30s, you know, really competitively and train twice a week. And this is what this person does. Um, and they're asking, how can they set up their training week uh, to get fitter when they have to train for this sport Tuesday, Thursday night, play on Saturday, the game's really intensive. And so you can't really, you're so sore on Sunday, you can barely train. Um, and yeah, I'd love to get your, your thoughts on this because I have a feeling I'll know your answer. But, you know, for someone who's an aspiring triathlete or, or, or cyclist or runner, how do, they, how do they get fitter? Yeah, well, really, you're putting your eggs in two baskets and, and you either want to continue playing your club sport and just, just keep, keep trying to do some fitness on the side or you put your club sport second and you concentrate on the goal of it was a marathon, wasn't it? I can't remember what it, remember. it might have been. Half was, marathon. Yeah, yeah. He's trying to. Oh, yeah, it was half marathon. You're trying right. to prepare yeah, for yeah, a half yeah, marathon. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, anything over twenty k is something that you can't really muck around with because it could be an ex- experience that you'll not enjoy if you're not 
prepared for it. And you know, for those who don't understand Australian rules football, it is a it has an endurance component in it, uh, but it has mainly um, short, high powered efforts um, plus, ta- plus tackling, plus plus getting physically attacked yeah um and you know we've got the example of nathan jones who's just finished a, a 70.3 um uh program uh successfully um transferring but he you know he left his football behind and concentrated on that and and i've got many examples of uh, athletes and i don't need to name them because they know who i'm talking about already who are trying to um be a top cyclist and a top triathlete um and I don't mean top as in elite. I mean top in their age group or competitive in their in their against their peers. Um, and you will be very good at both, but you won't be at the top of your game uh, at both because they interfere with each other. And just like this example, um, football has got n- no relationship to half marathon running except that you run in football and you run a half marathon. That's the only relationship. They're, they're completely different um, spheres of, uh, of training and, you know, <laughs> it won't help uh, in any way uh, your marathon running, but your marathon running training will help your football yeah. incredibly. Yeah. Um, so the big winner is your local club football yeah. Yeah. Um, and the loser is your marath- half marathon preparation. So the answer is, um, you know, sure, do the half marathon, but have very low expectations. Um, and you, you will find you'll probably miss more training than you because you're so sore. Mm-hmm. And you've actually tried to do it yourself, Jordan, mm-hmm. where you were, tra- you were playing at uh, amateur level and <clears throat> you were actually trying to have a, a mini running career alongside it. Um, but you, you couldn't do both. It was near impossible yeah. because you were so sore from the game. It took you three or four days to recover before you could actually train again. Um, and you've got training on the Tuesday. So. And that's right. So you're back into the actual football training. So when are you going to actually do other training? And you should actually be recovering. Um, so, so the answer is, look, it's it's not an ideal position to be in. Um, you probably need to not do the half marathon, but you could do it for fun. Just uh, but have no expectations would be my answer. I knew you were going to say that, and I thought that's just a really important point. And it's it's a tough one for athletes to hear because uh, you have this conversation a lot with athletes, and and it's not an answer they're expecting. They're expecting a solution to oh no, Jared will have a solution for how I can do both. And often you say no, I'm sorry, I I'm, I can't help you do both. And it's actually a tough choice to say well okay. I'm going to still enter this half marathon and I'll, I'll try and improve from last time um, because I have more experience. Um, I might be able to fit in some easier endurance running somewhere. Uh, there might be a buy in footy so I can do that on the weekend. Um, but yeah, the expectation has to be that that, that is not where your priorities are at the moment. And uh, if that's your choice, then um, be happy with that and have a half marathon career once you decide to stop playing footy. And to be fair, um, the, the couple of examples I was using, the athlete was okay with that very happy to be be okay as a cyclist and be okay as a triathlete and never complained mm-hmm. and just wanted to do both. Mm-hmm. And, and that's okay by me as well. As long as we both are clear as a coach and athlete when we're working together that you won't be the best triathlete you want to be and you won't be the best cyclist. That, you know, one of them is interfering with the other. You know, you, so much running as a triathlete is not actually helping your bike riding that much. Um, yeah. And so much riding is making you too tired to run as yeah. a triathlete. Yeah. Um, so, so the account productive but you know the examples I'm using they were okay with that and they they understood the expectations funnily enough um, taking this one particular example that I'm using and there'll be a few people who know I'm talking about but um, but concentrated totally on um, triathlon 
since that period of last two or three years of dabbling in everything that he could possibly compete in, which was unreal, and now is winning his age group at 70.3. And, you know, wow, what, it's, it's brilliant. It's, it's exciting. It's, mm-hmm. it's satisfying. And it just has rammed home, you know, could have been doing that for a while, <laughs> yeah. but because he's splitting his um, bets halfway, uh, now he's concentrating on one thing and, you know, one Geelong. And you have to be genuinely okay with it. You can't say you're okay. And then when you get the race time that you get, when let's say you're aiming for yep. you know, 150 and a half marathon and you don't get it because you haven't been able to train properly, you can't sit there and be disappointed. You have to be able to sit there at the end and say, no, this is what I, the decision I made. Moving on to our main topic of the day, let's talk about taking an effective break without detraining. So it's the end of the racing season for whatever your calendar is. Most For most places around the world, the most racing happens over summer. Uh, let's say you get to the end of the summer. I want to talk about what's your starting advice and what are you, what are you saying to our, our current athletes at the moment? I certainly have changed my mind over the, the journey and I think that's a good thing and I'm happy to admit that, that um, I may have improved my coaching um, over the last, you know, maybe I've been, I've been helping people since 1987 as a coach. So I reckon in the last five years, I definitely have changed my philosophy by listening to others and watching and learning from, from others. And, and, and I've kind of had a lot of time to think about, um, cause I've looked at professional athletes and I'll, and I've really thought, why, why don't we adopt the same principles with professionals as we do with amateur athletes who are training some of them just like professionals, except they may be 40 or 50 or 60 or, or 38 and they're, they're not in the elite race, but they're, they're certainly elite athletes in their age group. Um, so I'm talking about that particular athlete here. I'm not talking about the, the newcomer to triathlon or to bike riding or to marathon running. Um, I'm talking about someone who's actually trying to, you know, to stay at the top of their game and be competitive um, in whatever chosen sport they're doing in their in their age group. Mm-hmm. So for those of you who are not in that category, I'm not talking about you. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- that's another that's another method that I'd like to talk about. If you can ask me about that later, but um, but we 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 absolutely accept that you know an AFL team. At the end of their season, whether they get knocked out before the finals, they have a down period. They have a period where they they are left to their own devices for normally it's four to six weeks, something like that. Um, some clubs, it's if you get to the grand final, you end up having two weeks or three weeks before you start getting back into structured training. Um, and you can go through the list of you know athletes, cross country runners, um, swimmers. Uh, triathlete, professional triathletes, professional marathon runners, when they get to their A race, um, as a cyclist, you go and do the nationals or you go to Tour de France, you have a period where you have to have a downtime because you've been preparing and, uh, you know, getting your body to peak at this particular time. And as we've said many times on the podcast, you can't hold a peak for 52 weeks. You know, you'd be lucky to hold it for more than six weeks at a time. So so at the end of the day, um, once you've reached your grand final or your A race at, uh, at the local national level or the Tour de France is your you know, if you're an elite, the same for a for an age grouper who's at the top of his game. Whether it's a seventy point three, we've just had this, the finish of the summer season in Australia. Um, but at the end of the day, the point I'm trying to 
trying to make is we we need to allow our body to to actually um, mentally and physically um, get over the period of intensity and peaking um, and and as we've said with everyday training week to week where we train hard we need to have recovery days well this is the same we use we use the the six months of training to the a race as as our as our hard sessions and now the post a race we need to recover we need to mentally get away from from that that you know accountable training Mm. I could, I could, you know, that's the phrase that, you know, it's, it's totally accountable training. You, you need to keep ticking off session by session and you need to have a period where you're not going to be, um, you know, have your nose to the grind. You, you need to have a release somewhere. And just like a professional does, we need the elite age grouper to, to think the same way. So this is how I've changed my, my thought process that I need to treat the, the really competitive age grouper um, like we would treat a professional and and it is really important that they take a period off um, and and there are lots of consequences about what we're going to talk about here but but that's the first and foremost uh, point that I want to make is um, that's where I've just changed my philosophy a little bit. Um, I would generally treat the age grouper, um, the everyday cyclist, everyday triathlete, everyday marathon runner um, as if it's a 52-week uh, year where they have periods of hard training and easier training, which is not too dissimilar to what the pros do. But, but I'm telling the elite people that they need to actually have a break, um, uh, and not to do nothing, um, but to have a break from structure, um, where you're you're actually getting a mental and physical release from that. And why is that distinction so important? Between between what you're saying, the everyday age grouper compared to the top end age grouper. Yeah, because the every the everyday person is is absolutely about improving themselves, whereas the elite person is improving themselves plus they're trying to win. Mm. So so the everyday person is not trying to win, and so you need to be a little bit more focused in in your. I just think there's more pressure in. In, on, on yourself, expectations-wise, as compared to the person who's who's got the pressure of, I'm just trying to improve and and I'm not going to be pushed or not going to be dictated to by the race that's evolving around me with the other people I'm racing against. Because let's face it, we're determined for our people we coach to not focus on anybody else but your own race. And the exception is the guys who are trying to win their age group. We're trying to get them to... Re- race to a plan and then my second sentence is but don't forget to race so i think that's the distinction yep and so how does that uh actually look specifically with what you prescribe for the next few weeks post a race for both camps yep so we would select our next a race which is the process that most of them are doing now and and that's really straightforward they're so motivated because most of them have just done their last race was maybe melbourne or geelong um or it's going to be port mac in in a four weeks time or three weeks time um and for some it can be cairns as well but but then we 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 work backwards again our program might be another 24 weeks or 20 or 30 weeks and in that program we need to have um, remember, when we've come to the actual A race, we've had a week of taper. Okay, so that's one week where you've really done not done much training, and then post race, you've you've gone and done your race, and 
had the result, whatever it was, and then the week after, you actually don't train again. You you just move and try to recover. Mm-hmm. So in fact, you've already had really two weeks from when you finished uh, your training block. Uh, you had the one week of taper, then the race, and one week of recovery. So there's two weeks already mm-hmm. where you've detrained. Um, and as you know from the bell curve, um, you know the detraining has a very minimal effect at the top of the, the bell curve. But once you go past that two week period, then there's a a, a big drop off um, straight away. So so the next two weeks is is I look at it is you know you getting away from. Um, you know, me, me coaching you, uh, me in your face, um, texting, calling, whatever, me looking at the sessions, you know, that's not going to happen. Um, and you've got a period just to mentally and physically relax. Um, and you can choose to, to move in any way you want. You can choose to ride your mountain bike if you're a cyclist. You can choose to take the dog for a walk if you're a runner. Um, you know, you can just choose to go and swim just recreationally for whatever, but you can, you need to do something in that period. It's not me saying do nothing. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you need to move, um, but you move at your own pace. Um, yeah, you, you, there are a group of people who cannot handle this and they still need me to program their two weeks yep. post. So, so we're talking about four weeks in total, the week before the race, the week after, and then two weeks. So it's a period of four weeks after, you know, the biggest Detraining comes in that in that period. So, if you keep doing that, it gets worse and worse. If you take six weeks, you know, and eight weeks, um, you're just coming from a long way back. Mm-hmm. So, so we determine not to lose all the things we've gained. Mm-hmm. So that's important that you don't make it happen too long. And as you know from your own experience, if you have a football season and then you, you don't have another football pre-season uh, training session for potentially eight weeks after the season's finished, if you do nothing in that eight weeks, your first couple of weeks of pre-season training is absolute agony. Mm-hmm. You've got so many DOMs, you, you've got sore pain parts in muscles you didn't even know existed and, and you didn't even train very hard. Yeah. So if you keep doing something in this detraining period, as we call it, um, uh, you will come back on the start of your program in quite good shape. Um, and, and that's important to, to remember just to do something. Um, and it's not about training hard and, and we know statistically and scientifically that if you did one high intensity session during that period, you would lose less. But my advice is that no, you need a break from that. Mm -hmm. And if there is a race that happens to be on in that period and you want to have a crack, have some fun with it by all means. Don't not do it Mm -hmm. because Coach Jared is saying, you know, don't do any intensity. Yeah. But we do know intensity will stop your uh, fitness from declining so quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but that's defeating the purpose of what we're trying to achieve here. Yeah. We're and trying to get your brain and your body to have a mental and physical break from the the everyday rigors of the program. And we, I mean, we, you've referred to it as a detraining period, but we don't actually call it that. We don't say to our athletes, "Well, now you're going to go detrain for four weeks." That's not that's not uh, what it is. It's a, it's a recovery period. It's a refreshing period. It's a reset almost. And um, the, the detraining can incite a bit of a panic because as athletes, you work so hard for any potential improvement. And then when you hear the word detraining, you want to stay as far <coughs> away from that as possible. And so the point you're just making about weighing up the benefits of a rest compared to the potential of detraining and then losing a lot of fitness, um, in your opinion as a coach, the benefits far outweigh um, 
the potential of detraining because it's just not possible to um, maintain this uh, a high intensity training program mentally and physically, as you said, for 52 weeks of the year. And um, that's just going to lead to burnout. So knowing that we want to take a purposeful reset and knowing that's going to result in some detraining, we want to understand what the literature actually says about um, what's going to happen to your body. And you made the point that um, in that taper week, you are potentially detraining straight away, which is why it's so important to keep some high intensity in that week to keep you sharp and, and minimize that. You want to keep your fitness, but get yourself as fresh as possible. And then when you race, you'll get fitness gain from that anyway. So it, it will balance it out a little bit. Um, and then that recovery week, naturally you're going to lose some. And that's why you talk about the detraining process immediately beginning. When we're referring to re- detraining, we're just referring to the fact that the body is not getting a stimulus of overload and therefore it's not improving. And um, you know, the easiest, easiest example is your heart is a muscle. And if, if that's not being worked to a certain stimulus, that muscle is going to detrain um, as soon as you stop training with any intensity. The literature generally says that um, the first one to two weeks is a general minimal, minimal loss, um, but you have to accept there is a definite loss there. Um, over the first month, you will lose the most fitness. So let's say you took another two weeks completely off. That would be the most fitness you lost. Um, and then it does start to taper off a bit, which you mentioned with that curve. But you'll continue to lose much of your fitness gains. Um, but just like someone who starts a training program, the most gains are early and then it tapers off the fitter you get. You can't just keep progressing at that accelerated rate. The same with detraining. You uh, don't actually – you lose it at an accelerated rate, accelerated rate early, but it can't keep going like that. It, it tapers off eventually. And um, we'll talk about kind of fitness in the bank in a second. But um, I want to weigh up this balance of, um, of break – needing some intensity, dropping the volume because um, the literature also says that if you just included a little bit of intensity in there, um, you would dramatically um, decrease the amount of fitness lost. Um, but as a coach, you are really adamant in um, that's that's the type of training that that mentally weighs on an athlete so much. It, it, it can weigh you down um, and that's where the, the benefit of a mental break for you outweighs the, the fitness you are naturally going to lose. Yeah, and I, I just think about the examples of, um, so you've, let's just take the scenario that you've done your A race, you've had your week taper, you had your week recovery, then coaches said, right, two weeks of you just doing whatever you want and I'll get the phone call, there's a race on the second weekend, um, uh, I really want to do it, um, is it okay? And I'll, my answer will be sure, it's absolutely okay. So let's get that out there. Mm-hmm. And then I'll say, however, the purpose of the two-week period, so that's a four-week total, the purpose is for you to not do that for your mental and physical well-being. And in six weeks' time after that, so week 10, so you've had, you've had two, you know, a week of taper, a week of recovery, and two weeks of um, uh, uh, basically rest and recovery. And then six weeks later, if you've done a couple of hard – sessions through those two weeks, you will sort of be in a state where I just don't feel like I've had a rest. You know, mentally that's probably going to happen. Um, and you don't want to be in that position at six week six or week twelve of your 20 week new program. You don't want to feel like that. You want to feel like I'm so motivated after this rest period, I can't wait to get back into training. Whereas I've already done a couple of hard sessions, it almost feels like you haven't had a rest. Because you know how hard one hard session is, whether it's a race or whether you go riding with your mates, and all of a sudden you come back to your program, you actually haven't really recovered. Um, and 
And the other thing which we will talk about, which is fitness in the bank, but that's that's the reason why you should relax your brain knowing that these are things that are going to be hold you in good stead when it counts. Mm. So it, it is a mature athlete who can do this. An immature athlete will go, yeah, yeah, coach, whatever, and then go and do eight rides with his buddies and or her buddies and smash themselves and come back to week one in a worse state than they were supposed to, you know, that they, their fatigue will be high mm-hmm. and their motivation will be still quite good. But in week six and week 10, I'm going to question their motivation because they'll be, they'll be really a little bit, you know, geez, this is, this is getting hard um, because I didn't really take a proper break. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's my, that's my advice to the people. So it's like a spoil sport a, a, approach, you know, you, you want me to take a, a break from the from the structure, yet you don't want me to have fun. Well, you can still have fun with your mates, but when they take off up the road, you just tap away and you'll meet them at the coffee shop, mm-hmm. you know. Or don't ride all the time with them. Just take one one ride where you might actually have a little dig, but, but you know in your mind that that's not going to be helpful um, to the overall goal of what we're trying to do, which is, um, you know, reduce fatigue, uh, both physically and mentally, um, from the rigors and everyday uh, structure and routine of having to get up at a certain time and do a certain session and do certain power number and certain swimming pace and running pace, you just need a break. Mm. Um, and for the people who are everyday triathlete cyclists who are not trying to win races, um, why am I talking to them differently? Well, because it's a lifestyle for them, um, and they want to. They want to keep their fitness going. They don't want to have a period where they're detraining and losing fitness and having to get it back. So we we have an easier period, which which is still loosely structured, but it's all easy. It's all zone one and two with no intensity and and smelling the roses, sun on your back, you know, just enjoying. I've got an easy session today. I look forward to an easy session. I know I'm not going to hurt myself. Mm-hmm. So so they go through this period. They still go through this period, but it's subtly different Mm. um it's they're going to lose minimal fitness we're going to try and hold our fitness um so that they're not going backwards at any stage um so we have periods where they improve and have periods where they like the staircase approach you know you might spend three months at the one level and then we start training hard and then all of a sudden you go up 10 percent, and then we have another two weeks where we might have an easier period and then you, we go hard again and the, the improvement goes up another percentage. So so that's kind of what we're trying to do with the everyday person who's not trying to win their age group or qualify for nationals or, um, or you know, be a semi-professional type of athlete. And that's an example where you would almost encourage someone to go ride with their mates on, you know, they've ridden easy all week or, or uh, you know, if it's a triathlete, they've swam, run or ride, uh, ridden, ridden easy all week but then Saturday's the big bunch ride and you're just, you say, go have nuts, fun. have fun, have yep. a really high intensity day. You've had an easy week. It's not going to go into effect you next week. It's not going to make you exhausted once we come back. Yeah. So the, the, the point of difference is the, the really top of the age group, they need to not do that. They really should be the mature athlete there and be disciplined. And here I am telling them to be disciplined in their off period, <laughs> um, disciplined in the opposite way, mm. disciplined so that they don't. Um, overexert themselves, whereas uh, the other type of athlete, yeah, 
that's the fun period where, you know, you've just had such an easy period, you know, one or two sessions here or there will do exactly what the research tells us, which is it will keep your fitness at a steady state until we're ready to re, re-go again for the next uh, program towards your next day race. And lastly, to, I mean, to come full circle and finish off with, you know, the reason that you actually do prescribe it slightly differently to different athletes, you, you end up having a bit of a different conversation because you know the types of responses you can get. You can say to a motivated athlete, have two weeks of full recovery and when a, a, a mature motivated athlete will hear you and their next two weeks will look really easy. You'll look on training peaks and it'll be 14 easy rides, easy runs, whatever it is. And it's, and they've stuck to it. Whereas some athletes you say that and um, they go off the rails and you look back over two weeks and they've done three sessions and because they didn't have any structure to follow. And that's why sometimes you need a different conversation. And the two examples you're given are spot on, but there's a third one, the guy who goes with his bunch yeah. Every day, yeah. and he's actually more tired than he was before he came off a structure. Yeah. Um, so you know we have to we have to know who the people are before we can say you can fend for yourself. You need to still be doing these sessions, or or you know you, you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. So um, so the the point about um, the worrying factor for most athletes is I've worked so hard. To get this fitness level, why are you allowing me to lose some fitness? And and the easy answer is, and I've got a hundred thousand examples of people who have had an in- illness or an injury or some catastrophe that's prevented them from having maybe two or three weeks of of training. Yet they've come out two or three weeks later and performed close to their best, which doesn't make sense but it does make sense if you think about it this way you may have trained on a structured program for three months and if you had two or three weeks off you probably won't reach your pb in two or three weeks why because you've got a really small amount of fitness in your bank and we talk about the fitness bank a lot if you've been doing this for two years or a year or four years your bank is just overflowing with fitness so for you to have two or three weeks, it's it's like taking a thousand dollars out of your bank when your bank's got ten million in it. <laughs> but if you've if you've only been training for two or three months, your bank's only got two thousand dollars in it. If you take out a thousand, you've lost half your fitness. Mm. It's to do with what your background is in the previous historical uh, fitness levels are, and and that's a really it's a really good point for people to hear because it gives them that. Uh, that relaxation thought that oh, you know I'll be fine. It, it's not the end of the world that I'm that I'm going to actually take this period off, and it really does play on their mind. And and once I explain that to them, it, it's oh okay, that makes sense. And I've just I've just had three weeks off the bike myself, and just did a time trial after two weeks of training. I could not, as you as I told everybody at the the nationals on our podcast uh, that we talked about, I could not hit two ninety watts to save myself. I was hovering around two eighty, two eighty two um, in January, and you know no, November, December, January, and that continued in February, March. I had three weeks off, and then I rode last Sunday two ninety watts. Well, that doesn't make sense because. I basically didn't train for the last four weeks. I had three weeks of no training and one week of training, yet I've improved. And, you know, there's a great example of allowing fatigue to be shed. I've got this massive bank of fitness 
built up and lo and behold, you perform well. Mm-hmm. So, so have that in your mind that this is actually good for me and it will help me, not hinder me. Yeah. And as long as you can understand that, you can relax and enjoy that period. To a degree, because the final caveat would be that just because you have great fitness in the bank does not mean you're invincible and you will still suffer the effects of detraining if you let it get out of hand. And uh, that's probably one last frustration that you have had with some athletes over the years is that they've done so much work building up that fitness bank and then they take too long off and and that does actually undo the work. So a good example of that, it's a good one to finish on, is I've got a few athletes who regularly take probably six, eight, ten weeks off and and I'm okay with whatever people want to do. But I always say to them, you left the program at this level and you've now taken this period off the program and I've looked at all your training and it's spasmodic at best. And you come back, so you leave the program at 100% Mm -hmm. of your ability, you've come back at 60. It's going to take me 10 weeks to get you back to 100 and then you get to your A race four weeks later or, or 10 weeks later, I've got you at 105, 110% of where you, where you were when you left the program. The athlete who stays with the structure at 100% drops back to 95, 90, and then he starts his program. He's at 125, 130%. Whereas the guy who keeps coming on and off, he's not going that – he's not advancing himself mm-hmm. or herself – they're, they're, they're going a couple of steps forward and then a massive 100 metres backwards um, and then catching up to where they were before and then adding a little bit. Mm. Whereas the person who's more consistent, and we talk about that a lot, you know, you can be consistent in, in whether it's high intensity or, or medium intensity or low intensity. You just got to be consistent. And that's what I've experienced uh, a lot with people who come on and off a lot is they actually don't do anything Um uh, that's worthwhile in their off period and we spend a lot of time getting them back to where they were before they can actually improve. And and it, I don't think a lot of them actually don't get what I'm saying. They're not understanding that that the more time you you actually don't concentrate on improving yourself and, and you know, if your goal is to, to be a better uh, triathlete or a better cyclist or a better marathon runner, the more times you do that to yourself – the more frustrated you'll get because you won't actually improve that much. You'll you'll get to your A race similar to what you were previous yep. A races. Yep. Whereas the person who's kind of had two or three years of consistency, and I always say to people, it's amazing after the third year how many people start blowing their PBs apart. They are all of a sudden mid-packers to now, you know, examples we've got of winning national individual time trials from, from a three-year consistent program where they just didn't go backwards they just continued to improve from where they were when they first joined and it you know it takes about that long to be at the top of your your level in any sport you're in you just can't pick it up and be there in six weeks you know we've got that many examples of people it took two two years three years four years but they got there and now they're they're elite athletes in their age group um, at national level and they weren't that that level mm. before. They were damn good athletes but never succeeding at that at that level. So it is an interesting uh, 
way of looking at it and, and if you can think about that, you can make better decisions. Yeah, it's interesting because it, it is a common misunderstanding we get with a lot of people thinking Trivalo just coach elite athletes, which we always want to remind people we don't. Uh, we want to coach anyone that wants to improve. That is our goal no matter what level you're at. If you want to improve, as long as you want to enjoy the process and that's our goal. But secondly, that uh, these are elite athletes. We're always elite athletes, you know, and we're talking about elite. We're not talking uh, – when we say elite, we're talking about elite in their age group. We're not talking about professional paid mm. athletes. We're talking about – the elite in their 50 to 55 category being national champions for 50 to 55 age group, for example. Um, but like you said, the misconception is they were always at that. But no, one year ago, two years ago, three years ago, they were mid-pack in their age group. They were coming 5th, 10th, 15th. Um, and after all the work, um, now they're winning and that is a result of uh, their training, their consistency in training. Yeah, and the, going a step further, we've got people who come to us who are coming 120th who then in their first year became 100th and then, you know, 80th, 50th, 30th, and now in the top 20. And that gives us more joy than someone who's going from 5th to 1st to 4th to 3rd. Still fun to have the guys on the top of the podium, but boy, do I enjoy seeing someone come from that far back um, just by being consistent and, and you know, the – they're continuing on the program um, over that two, three-year period is enable them to do that. And, and that's why you have to really consider um, uh, how much time you take off um, because you are putting yourself at a distinct disadvantage for your overall improvement over the journey. And let's face it, we've said many times that you're, you're doing this because you enjoy it and, and it's <clears throat> possibly to do with health and fitness for the majority of our, our athletes we coach, and it's a small percentage who are at the pointy end. Let's get that mm-hmm. clear. Mm-hmm. The majority of athletes we coach are, are beginners or mid-packers, um, and they're getting huge improvements, um, obviously. Um, and, and they're the ones who, you know, who understand that consistency is going to actually get them there in the end. And, and you know, at the end of the day, that's all I want the listeners to, to kind of grasp with this topic is that, um, no matter whether you're a professional full-time paid athlete or a, or a top age grouper or someone who just wants to improve, you do need to have some period where you have downtime. That's a good place to finish. Really, to summarize, you want to take an effective break without detraining. That was the whole purpose of this topic. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.